Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to those who did receive Him, to all who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. For God so loved the world that He gave church family. It's uh, great to be together today. I know I could ask you a simple question, how are you doing? And I know that that would be a whole lot of different answers uh, from folks in this room. Some of you uh, doing awesome and excited about everything that God's doing in your life, and others of you uh, maybe the darkest place you've ever been. And so I recognize that uh, with a group this size, that there's all kinds of things happening in our lives. And I believe that God has a word for us this morning as we're continuing our series uh, called The Gift of God. But I'm going to pray for us and just ask God to give this time to us as a gift, for some of you a time of refuge, uh, for some of you a time of re- re- like refreshment, some of you a rebuke. And so let's just pray that God would meet with us this morning as we open up his word. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for every person that's seated in this room. Thank you for everybody that you've brought here today. It's not a mistake. It's by your sovereign plan that each person will be here at this very moment. And Father, we don't know where we'll be a week from now. We don't know what you're going to call, what you're going to do, what will happen. But God, we know that we have this moment with you. And I pray in this moment that you would meet with us that you would transform us, I pray, for those of us that are believers in your Son, Jesus Christ, renew our minds. Help us to live out what it is to be a living sacrifice. For those of us who don't know your Son, Jesus, as Savior, God, I pray that you convict our hearts of our sin. Put your hand heavy upon us and draw us to you with your irresistible grace. Call us to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've been doing this series called The Gift of God, and if you were here last week, you know that I started off talking about how, as a church, we've never done a series called The Gift of God before. But it's pretty normal that during the Christmas season that I'll talk about gift exchanges and how you as a church have been good about actually interacting with me over some of those gift exchanges. And I told a couple of stories. One was about uh, a time when I had joked about Sky Mall Magazine and buying gifts from Sky Mall Magazine and, dre- and decorating your car like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And some of y'all took it upon yourself to decorate my car with reindeer antlers during the service. It was awesome. It was great. Thank you so much for doing that. My car is totally fine. It no longer has antlers on it. It's wonderful. And then I talked about fruit cakes. I learned a lot about our church by talking about fruitcakes last week, just so you know. I told a story, for those of you who weren't here, about a time when I was going to joke about fruitcakes being one of the worst gifts you could possibly get, and before the service started, two people, two independent families came to me, gave me the gift of fruitcake. I went to an elder. I was like, I don't know what to do. I went for it. They don't go to our church anymore. Talked about that last week. After the service last week, I'm standing out by the orange tent, greeting first-time guests, talking to different folks, the regular attenders, and one of our volunteers walks by. 
and says, I didn't do anything to your car. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel good about my car in that moment, just if you were thinking about doing that today. I get out to my car, someone had put fruitcake on my car. After church, I get emails about fruitcake, and on my Facebook page, somebody posts a Facebook, you know, fruitcake that's on there, and people start talking to me, and here's the thing that I learned. We have a church divided, okay? Because we got some people who think fruitcake is disgusting, like myself, and some of y'all love fruitcake. It's kind of strange, and so I want you to come out of the closet today and tell us if you love fruitcake. You got your hand up, Mihai. I don't think that's what you're talking about. We got one over here. All right, I see that hand. How many of you love fruitcake? Raise your hand if you love fruitcake. How many of you think it's disgusting? How many of you have never heard of fruitcake? You don't even know what in the world I'm talking about. We've got one in the back. Thank you. One in the middle. Got it right here. I see you. All right. I'm a pastor. I don't miss hands. You got it. Here's what I found out. After I did that, there were people that secretly started coming to me. Like, I get text messages. This hasn't been real public. I get messages on Facebook almost daily. We had a volunteer appreciation on Wednesday night. Big party at our office. You know, 150, 200 people were up there. And this guy comes up to me and says, I need to talk to you. As a pastor, when one of the members of the church comes to you and says, I need to talk to you, you're like, oh, okay. What, what is it? If anybody gives you fruitcake, you can give it to me. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I've been getting that message over and over again. And then I've got other people that are saying how terrible it is. Here's what I've learned from this. Every gift demands a response. Every gift. You could think it's a horrible gift. You could think it's an incredible gift. Every gift demands a response. And I was thinking about it for this week. And thinking about some of the gifts that I've received before, and you, you know, you think to yourself, I hope you kept the receipt, or why do, why do three people buy me the same gift? Do they really think I need this? Like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. Or sometimes you get a gift and it's so amazing, you're surprised by it. And I was going to tell you the story about how last year after Christmas Eve, we have a tradition in our, at our house that after Christmas Eve service, we give all four of our girls one Christmas present that night. The youngest ones haven't caught on yet, it's the same present every year, it's pajamas. The oldest ones know. So the oldest ones now, they say things like, for my pajamas this year, can I have? So there's no surprise in that. But last year, we had a surprise. They opened their pajamas after the Christmas Eve service, and then we gave them a little picture of a puppy, and, and then they then told them that we were actually going to be getting a puppy, when that puppy's going to be coming home. And here, I'm not going to tell you the story. I'm going to let you watch it, because some of you think I exaggerate things. And so I want you to see this little, little short clip video of the girls finding out they're getting a puppy oh, last year. My That's just the picture. His name is Sparty. He will come to our house after we go to the mountains. They, they toned down the speakers a little bit. I'm pretty confident that some of those squeals were only heard by that dog. There are so, see, if I would have told you that, you'd have been like, yeah, they probably got excited. No, I'm telling you, that is what happened. That is what took place. They responded to the gift. Every gift demands a response. In this series called The Gift of God, here's, let me tell you a little spoiler alert for Christmas Eve, by the way. We've talked about the gift of hope and the gift of grace. Every time the gift is actually Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about joy. We're going to talk about peace. We could talk about all kinds of things, the gift of the word, the gift of faith, all kinds of gifts we could talk about, but the gift every time is actually Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings those things to us. And so today we're going to talk about the gift of Christ and Christ coming into our lives, and here's the reality of the gift of Christ. It demands a response. He demands a response, and it's a response of faith. And so the question I want you to ask yourself as we open up the scriptures back in Luke chapter 1 again today is this. Here's the question. What is your next step of faith? And I realize that asking a room this size, that question, there are hundreds of different responses to that because we're all at different places. Some of you, your next step of faith is your first step of faith. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You need to acknowledge your sin before Him. Ask, ask Him to be Lord, to give Him your heart, and ask Him to come into your life and be the Savior of your life. But some of you, you've done that. 
And you might not say this out loud, but you act like that's it. That's the end of it. Let me remind you of Philippians 1.6. He who began, began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work. And the process of him completing that work, he's going to keep calling you to come, to step out by faith like Peter, the edge of the boat. Step out. Come, Peter. Come. Take the next step of faith. And so what is your next step of faith? It'll be a very personal answer. Well, we're going to be Luke chapter 1 today, and we're going to start reading in verse 39, picking up where we left off last week. If you haven't been with us, just to catch you up to speed, the Gospel of Luke is actually not written to a whole bunch of people. The Gospel of Luke is written to one guy. Luke is burdened for one of his friends. We talk about as, our, as a church all the time, that if you're a regular attender, if you're a member, we want you to have one person at least a year. If you're already a believer, then we want you to be praying for somebody else to become a believer. We want you to be praying that your heart would be burdened for somebody who, if they died today, would spend eternity separated from God. For Luke... That's Theophilus. And so he's writing this book, not to a bunch of Jews, not to a bunch of Gentiles, but to his friend, the the most beloved, this most excellent Theophilus, this guy that his heart's burdened for. And so far in Luke, in the first 38 verses, he's told us two stories. Both of them are birth announcements. Both of them are miraculous. Both of them are very different. One's to an older couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are past childbearing age. They haven't been able to have any children. And this angel Gabriel visits them and says, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Six months later, that same angel visits this young gal named Mary, who's not even married. She's probably about 14 years old. That's on the high end of the estimation, maybe as young as 12. About 14 years old. She's never been with a man, pledged to be married to a guy. And she's told that she's going to have a baby. But not just any baby, the Messiah. She says, how's this going to happen? And the angel says, God does the impossible, Mary. And then she surrenders with that incredible verse that we left off with last week. May it be to me as you have said. I'll do according to your word. I am the Lord's servant. I surrender all to you. And oftentimes we stop there and we treat this next passage of Scripture like it's just a transition from that surrender to this incredible song that starts in verse 46. But I think God has a word for us from this passage that we often treat just like a transition to get from one point to the next point. It's there intentionally. I think Luke's doing something very intense. Look at it with me in verse 46. In those days, so after she surrenders, may it be to me as you have said, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Verse 40, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, not turned, not kicked, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, the mother of my Lord? How did you know, Elizabeth? Mary didn't say anything. How did you know the Lord was in her womb? The mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That's John the Baptist. Remember, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's actually fulfilling the mission of his life, even from the womb. We've got a silent prophecy here. This is the Messiah. He's he's leaping in the womb. And then the first beatitude of the New Testament. You know, beatitudes are uh, the blessed are those statements. Like in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here we've got happy, makarios, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What Luke is doing here, this passage is about faith, and he's talking to her about faith. He's showing us a response of faith. And what he's doing is he's going right after our hearts. And by going after our hearts, I don't mean emotional manipulation. Like, I don't know how many of you watch, you know, the story. There's, there's movies sometimes that are written. The whole purpose of them is to make you cry. 
Okay, sometimes at my house, I'll work from home, and I'll be up in my office late at night, and my wife will watch some, like, Hallmark movie, Lifetime movie, TNT movie. Some of you are looking at your spouses like, you watch those. And my wife will come into my office, and she'll be crying. Like, a dog will have run away. Uh, some, you know, couple that wanted to be together couldn't be together. Uh, there's a love story. Maybe somebody died, and she'll come into my office. She'll be weeping. She'll want to tell me how much she loves me. And I'll say things like, we didn't know those people. That wasn't real. Why are you crying? I know, I'm so tender, right? I'm just so sensitive. It's just it's a gift that I have. Here's what I try to point out to her. I say, you know, the writer had one goal. Like, it's like a, writing some songs. The writer had one goal in the song. It was to make you cry. And they won. They got the goal. They did it. Here, Luke's got a goal in this, and it's not because there's two pregnant women. Like, think about all the emotions that would be with that. This newly pregnant young gal, 14 years old, and this woman that couldn't have a child. She's probably in her 60s, and she's six months pregnant, and it's, it's amazing, united, and how, this, how does she know the Lord? And the point's not to get you to be like, wow, it's amazing. It's not to cause you to cry to the joy. He's going after your heart, not mental manipulation, but he's going after your heart by saying, this is about faith. Mary's the ideal picture of faith. What step of faith are you going to take? It's calling you to faith. What's your next step of faith? And here's what you need to know. That responding by faith means we must take risks. Responding by faith means we must take risks. And from God's perspective, there's no risk. He's sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. But from our perspective, when we don't know what's going to happen, that seems like a risk. And God calls us to step out by faith. Here's the problem. It's, not, it's counterintuitive to us. It's not natural for us. Here's why, at least two reasons why we're not prone to take risks. One, because we love comfort. We all love comfort. I love comfort. You love comfort. We all love comfort. Here's another reason. We're naturally doubters. We're all naturally skeptical. We're naturally doubters. You see it all throughout the Bible. I was reading uh, yesterday Moses when he gets called to the burning bush and he starts off, he's like, I can't speak. And God overcomes that objection. He's got more objections. Finally goes at the end and, and Exodus chapter 4, can you just send somebody else? He doubts. Doubts himself. Doubts what God's doing. Think about Gideon. You know the fleece story? Sometimes you've heard the fleece story. Like, I want to put out my fleece story. It's not necessarily a great thing. And what Gideon does, he actually does it twice. Have you read that? In Judges chapter 6. He puts out a fleece. He says, have the grass be dry and the fleece be wet, and then I'll know that you're speaking. And that's exactly what happens. Then he comes out again. He goes, all right, let's have the grass be wet and the fleece be dry. He's doubting. Thomas, what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who haven't seen a belief. Had to see. Had to see. And so we call him Doubting Thomas. Even John the Baptist. A lot of times we just don't talk about anything John the Baptist doubting. In Matthew chapter 11, I think, it is he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, is that really you? John the Baptist who's leaping in the womb here. Even he doubts. So we all doubt. Here's the good news. God uses even doubters. But eventually you have to step out of your comfort zone. Eventually you have to actually trust Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not, hey, he loves me even in my... No, you've got to trust. You have to trust. Eventually, you have to trust. You have to step out. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so what happens is we go to step out, and we want all these guarantees. We, want second, we, we delay, and we wait, and Mary is the picture here of ideal faith. No delay. She obeys right away. She goes. She takes action. She doesn't just believe and just surrender. She takes action. So you see it all the time throughout the Bible. When you see people take steps of faith, Peter didn't know what would happen when he stepped out of the boat until he stepped out of the boat. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those boys that are going to be burned in the fiery furnace, even if God doesn't rescue us, they don't know that God's going to rescue them. We read the story. We know. They didn't know. To them, it was risk. The Israelites, when they come to the promised land and they don't enter, it's because they think the obstacles are bigger than God. 
God said, I'm going to give you the promised land. But they didn't know what would happen, so they didn't risk. See, that always demands a response. But it can be a good response or a bad response. For Mary, it was a good one. Think about Mary's situation. We talked about the setting last week. This 14-year-old girl, she's living in Nazareth, which is a town that's known for immorality. Little nothing town, maybe only 500 people, at max 2,000 people that are living there. You went there because you wanted material blessing, not because you wanted God to show up. It's not a place you expected God to show up, and God shows up. And he shows his grace, and he speaks into her life. And then she comes to the place where she says this incredible verse, verse 38. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. I'll do according to your word. Or the NIV, may it be to me just as you have said. It's this verse of surrender. It's what we, we should all come to this place. Whatever you want me to do, God, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, I'll do it. Total surrender. I surrender all. I surrender everything to you. I surrender my kids to you. I surrender my marriage to you. I surrender the things I think I control. I surrender the things I know I can't control. I surrender it all to you. My time, my talent, my, my money, all of it's yours. It's a beautiful thing. But she knew she was risking. She knew she was risking her reputation. We didn't talk much about this last week. But in order to understand this, you've got to understand this is a different culture than we live in. We live in a time, you know, young girl, young teenage girl gets pregnant, and it's like, oh, that, that's bad. Nobody's saying that that's a good thing, that it should happen. But we're like, what happens? People make mistakes. We go out condoms in the school. We just know that it happens. This was a different time than that. They may have lacked some of the grace that we have. We lacked some of the morality they had. What happened then? Good girls didn't. And if you did, you might as well wear the scarlet A around for the rest of your life. Because that's what happens in Mary's life, by the way. Because in John chapter 8, what, is it, what do the Pharisees say to Jesus? We weren't born of sexual morality. You're a bastard. Your, your mom, she committed adultery. That's what they're saying. That was the reputation. She knew she risked her reputation. She knew she risked probably all of the relationships in her life. She knew she was risking maybe even her life. She'd be stoned to death for adultery. And so putting that in that context, it makes it even more beautiful that she says, may it be to me as you have said, verse 38. But verse 38 is so awesome at the beginning, we almost always miss the second part. You have your Bible? Look at verse 38, the second part. It says, Mary said, behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And that's the part we always focus on. It's incredible. We should focus there. But the next part, and the angel departed from her. Uh, <laughs> no instructions? What do I do next? You ever been to that place in your spiritual journey? Maybe you walk down front and you sur I surrender my life to Jesus. Now what? You're in your quiet time. You're with the Lord. He convicts you of some sin. I'm never doing that again. I surrender to Jesus. I'm, I surrender all. I'm gonna, I want to go on the mission field. I'm going to be bold and share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm going to do these things. Whatever it is you surrender to him, then, then what do you do? <laughs> well, now you've got to put the faith in action. She's not told, like, here's the plan. Go execute. Work the plan, Mary. Just work the plan. You got a plan? Here's the X's go here. O's go here. You're an O, Mary. Make sure you run the post route. <laughs> it's not how this works. So she's got to step out not knowing what's going to happen. So what does she do? Verse 39. That's where we see the faith in action. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. Not haste like she was in such a frantic hurry. What's showing here is the obedience. This is ideal obedience. What's she obeying? She's obeying right away without delay. We tell our kids that all the time. First time every time is what we say to our kids. We've got 12 to 6. So they don't always do it in case you don't have kids in that age range. But we say, obey right away. Because if you delay in your obedience, that's not obedience. If I had to tell you three or four times, you've already disobeyed. 
So what's your next step of faith? What's your risk? Well, I just need to make sure, oh, Gideon. Well, I'm not sure about me, oh, Moses. Is it really you, God? John the Baptist? Which brand of doubt is it? Why do we delay? We delay because we don't trust the one who's calling. She didn't delay. But how does she know to go if there was no instructions there? Well, she's got a word from God. It's in verse 36. She's responding to God's word because here's what faith is not. Faith is not just doing some stupid thing and putting God's name on it. Faith is not, I'm going to be a drag racer for Jesus, and I don't even need a seatbelt because I'm a Calvinist or whatever. I'll die on my day. You know, I'm going to bungee jump for Jesus, and I don't even need the cord, whatever. You don't test God. That's sin. That's foolishness. You're stepping by faith when you're responding to God's word. And so go back to verse 36. In verse 36, the only word she had from God was this. She didn't ask for a sign, but she's told that she's going to be pregnant, and she's a virgin, and, she's, and then the angel says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And verse 37, one of my favorites in the Bible, for nothing will be impossible with God. So let me tell you something about Mary, though. Uh, I know this for sure. She did not see Elizabeth's Facebook post with a little chalkboard that said six months, and here's my baby bump. She didn't do that. There's no Twitter feed for her. She didn't get a text message. She didn't. All she had was God's word. She's responding to God's word. And here's something I didn't know until studying this passage this week. And, and you know, oftentimes the Christmas story is so familiar, but there's a new thing that I learned is this journey that she went on. So many times we talk about Mary and Joseph going from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But I've never heard anybody talk about Mary traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. It's a three to five day journey. She didn't have all the details planned out on her itinerary. She went with haste immediately, right away. She's a 14-year-old girl. We know that the roads are filled with bandits. We assume she traveled in a caravan. We don't know. And she doesn't know what's going to happen. But she goes. It seems like risk. She knows she can give birth to the Messiah. She's not going to die. But she doesn't know she's going to be robbed. She doesn't know she's going to be beat. She doesn't know what detour. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She goes by faith in response to God's word. I was reading a story this week about a guy named Brother Andrew. Uh, Brother Andrew is a guy who smuggled Bibles for over 60 years uh, into communist countries. Started off with you know, Russia, the Iron Curtain, getting the Bibles back behind that area. And um, At that time, there was a Cold War. Uh, the Cold War was ideologically, the East and the West disagreed with one another. And there was a fear amongst all people that a nuclear holocaust to take, could take place if either one responded. They could destroy the other nation. And it was illegal to have Bibles in communist countries. And Brother Andrew started off by taking risk. In fact, his organization that he started, called Open Doors, if you want to Google it and look it up later, uh, started just over 60 years ago. They don't call him the CEO or the president. They call him the lead risk taker. And this week I was reading, he's got a book called God's Smuggler. I was reading a story about him smuggling Bibles into a communist country. He was going into Romania. He was at the border. And he said, my only hope in making, getting these Bibles through here, he had a carload of illegal Bibles that were hidden in his car, so my only hope was that the guards were rushing everybody through. I said, but when I got there, that's not what was happening. So the first car that was in line, I watched them get the guy out of the car and make him, they make him take all the contents of the car, put it out on the ground, and then they inspected everything out on the ground. They put everything back in that guy's car, he drove away. Same thing with the next car, same thing with the next car. The fourth car, he said, was the worst. It took over an hour for them to inspect this car. They actually took the seats out of the car took the hubcaps off the car, were inspecting everything in the car. He said at that point he realized there was no trusting in his intellect or his wit to get by these guards. 
And so he asked God to do a miracle. And he took one of the Bibles that was in his car and he put it out in the open where it could be seen. <laughs> he could be arrested, killed for this. Puts this Bible out and said it would remind him not to trust in his intellect. And he started praying. And he pulled up when it was his turn. He handed his papers out to the guard. And he started to get out of the car. He just assumed it was going to go like every other one. But the guard had his knee on the door. And he looked at the passport, looked at the papers, and he handed them back in and he told them to move along. The other car was over an hour. This, it took about 30 seconds, he said. He said, when I was driving away, I had my foot over the brake. I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I'm just waiting for them to stop my car and tell me to pull back over. Nothing. He didn't know what was going to happen, but what happened was a miracle. He took the risk. Brother Andrew is famous. They say it's his trademark prayer. He didn't patent it. You don't have to pay to pray this prayer. But I want to read to you a prayer that he was famous for praying. He said, Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray you make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. He would have in his lifetime a lot of those encounters. It's risk. What's God calling you to risk? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know if you're going to save us. We don't know if you're going to deliver us. But we're staying faithful to God. Peter, when he gets out of the boat, I wonder with Peter, when he got out of the boat, why didn't the other disciples, like, that's awesome, I'm doing that. You know why? They were comfortable in that boat. What's your risk? Maybe God's calling you to start a Bible study in your community. Maybe God's calling you to be bold with your faith. Maybe it's time for you to invite somebody to come to our Christmas Eve service and hear the gospel. Maybe you're supposed to give at a level you've never given before financially. Maybe it's time for you to put yourself out there relationally. See, for you to actually live by faith, you have to take action. It's not just about the things you believe in your mind. Because you can believe in your mind, here I am, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But then when it's time to actually do something, you find out if you have faith. There's a famous illustration. I think Billy Graham was the one that made it famous of using a chair to illustrate what faith is and how faith is different than just intellectual belief. And so the way that it goes is that I can believe all the facts about this chair. I can believe the height of this chair, uh, how much weight it says that it can support. I can believe that it can support my weight. But until I actually sit in the chair, I haven't trusted. And what faith is, is it's going beyond just intellectually knowing something and putting belief together with trust. It's belief plus trust. That's what faith is. And that's why faith has actions. And so you can believe that Jesus was God. You can believe that you're a sinner. I hope you believe that. The Bible says that everybody is. You can believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was tempted in every way just as you're tempted, and never sinned, and then died on the cross for your sins, and offers you eternal life. Even the demons believe that, by the way, and they shudder. But you don't have faith until you say, I'm not trusting in myself, I'm not trusting in my religion, I'm not trusting to get myself cleaned up, I'm not trusting in my whatever it is on my resume, trusting in Jesus Christ. You sit in the chair. You can say, you know, last series that we did was be connected with one another. We talked about the one another's of Scripture. We talked about confessing sin to one another, carrying each other's burdens, uh, loving one another, caring for each other. We talked about all these one another's. You can say you believe all that stuff and be encouraged and amen and leave here feeling great about everything. But until you put yourself out there relationally, haven't sat in the chair. You can say, you know, in Acts, in red letters, it says that Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Isn't that a make crazy coming from the guy who gave his life? It's better to give than to receive. And you can say you believe that, but until you take your money and you do something with it, you haven't sat in the chair. 
I remember when we were starting the church, uh, there was a young business guy that went to our church. He's now moved to a different part of the country, successful uh, financially and all that. But we were riding in his car, and he said to me, when I get to this spot financially, then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna be generous. It's like he had never read that passage of scripture that says, if you're not faithful a little, you're not gonna be faithful with much. And some of you are waiting for God to call me to the mission field and call me to do this thing. Are you being faithful sharing the gospel now? Are you, are you being faithful with what you've been, are you being faithful with those kids that are in your home that you're supposed to be discipling? You wanna lead some movement? You wanna do some big thing? You gotta sit in the chair. It requires trust, it requires action. That's what Mary did. Ironically, though, in verse 39, it says she arose. So it ruins my illustration, but you get the idea. She took action because God gave her word and then she did it. And God's given us a lot of stuff in his word. Commands to keep, promises to cling to, warnings to take heed. See, that's faith. And we say, what did he say? You know, Brother Andrew, it wasn't just like he dreamed up one day, you know what, I think I'm going to risk my life and take Bibles in the communist country. He was reading in the seven churches in Revelation and it said, strengthen what remains. And his goal was to get the Bibles to the Christians that were already there, that they would have God's word. He's responding to God's word. And so for you, what is it? Maybe you need to be bold with your faith. It's clear you're supposed to take the gospel out there. I don't know if that's to your neighbor, to your one, or you're supposed to go be a missionary overseas. I don't know. God will speak to your heart. Holy Spirit does that. I don't know what it is that you're supposed to tithe. Maybe you've never tithed before. Maybe you're supposed to start giving generously beyond that. I don't know. Start a Bible study in your, in your home. I don't know. But God will speak to you, what is your next step of faith? It will seem like risk to you because you don't know how it will go. But let me tell you the next point. The next point is this, that faith ignites a passion for Christ. Faith ignites a passion for Christ. And some of you are lukewarm. I don't say that condemning or judgmental, and I'm not picking on any person here, but here's the reality. I know that it's true, not because I've been reading your mail, not because I heard something you prayed, some secret pastor tap line that I have. Here's how life goes. We ebb and flow. Up and down. Sometimes you're on fire for Christ. Sometimes you're in the valley. Sometimes you just seem like you're kind of cruising along. Some of you, there was a time in your life, maybe it was when you first trusted Christ, and you were so bold with the gospel, and that time has passed. And some of you, you started studying the Bible, and everything seems so fresh to you, and not anymore. It's like, I know that. Got it. Mm -hmm. Some of you, you were serving at one time. Enjoy. And every day from today to the next day, it's one day further from that time. Your response is you want to step out by faith. Because let me show you what happens here with Mary. So Mary goes and she sees Elizabeth. Gets those, imagine what it must have been like to get those amazing words. The mother of my Lord, how did you know? I didn't tell you about the angel. How did you know? Blessed, Macarius, happy are those who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken and she has. And so she breaks out in a song in verses 46 through 55. And we see the passion of her soul in this song of somebody who steps out by faith and she's growing and learning more and more about God. Look what she says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, exalts the Lord. Some of your translations, the word magnify means to make bigger. Here's the reality. We can't make God any bigger. So what is Mary saying when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord? Here's what she's saying. God's becoming bigger to me. See, oftentimes we might know that God, he's, there's no containing him. He's infinite. There's no, there's no measuring him. We know that in our heads. But until we step out by faith, we haven't experienced that ourselves. And so what ends up happening is we step out by faith and God becomes bigger to us. One of the reasons why many of us act like God is so small is because we've experienced so little of him. 
And when we step out by faith, what ends up happening is we magnify God because we start realizing, you really are trustworthy. You really do show up when we're out on the water. You really are in the fiery furnace. You really are in that car when I realize that I can't trust my intellect. I can't do this on my own. I've got, I actually need you. Because it's when you're by faith, the reason why your faith ignites passion for Christ is because then you realize you, still, you cling to Christ. And so she says here, my soul exalts you, magnifies the Lord. It's because she's clinging to Christ in this moment. That's all she's got. She knows she's risking every relationship. She might be risking her own life. But she's got Jesus. What does Jesus say to us? You want a promise? Nothing can separate you from his love. It doesn't matter what faith step he's calling you to take. He'll be there with you. He's going to love you through the process. It might be miserable. You might get killed. But Jesus will be there. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 11? It talks about those folks that were sawn in two, their heads chopped off, stood before lions. It says the world is not worthy of them. Do you know why? Because they knew there was more than just this life. They were looking to Christ. Mary, she's clinging to Christ, and Christ becomes to her like a life preserver. Imagine being out in the ocean, and you think you're going to drown, but you've got a life preserver. Do you know how dear that life preserver becomes to you at that moment? That's your very life. You are clinging to that life preserver. Now, you can be on a cruise ship, and there are life preservers on the cruise ship. And you might think to yourself, I believe that if I needed that life preserver and things got really bad, I would, I would cling to that life preserver, but I'm on the cruise ship. And what many of us do in our Christian lives is we sit by the buffet of the cruise ship and, and our consumer Christianity, right? Like we just take the things we like and Jesus is there and we see him and he kind of blocks our view every once in a while. And maybe we wonder, like, I don't know, was that, was that life preserver really inspected by the official life preserver inspection people? We've got our doubts. But we think that if, if we had to call out, we would. We're comfortable. And we're lukewarm. But when we step out by faith, we cling to that life preserver because it's all we have. I remember when we first planted the church, there was a song that we would sing often. It was called Enough. Jesus, you're enough. All of you is more than enough for me. All of you is what satisfies me. When you walk by faith, that's, you, you're clinging to Jesus. That's where Mary's at. And then she tells the rest of us why we can trust him. And so the rest of the song is basically her saying, hey, the water's great, come on. You, you come step out by faith too. Come with me, because let me tell you about the one that I'm learning about. And look what she says in verses 47 through 49. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. My life is going to be reversed, it's changed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The first thing she shares with us here is how personal of a Savior he is. Do you want to know why you can trust him? You can trust him because he's personal. And you see what Mary says here? She says that he is my Savior. Now there are some religions, some churches that will say that Mary didn't need a Savior. And they sin by saying that Mary didn't need a Savior and making Mary sinless. Mary was a sinner just like us. But notice she doesn't just say Jesus is the Savior. It's not a Savior, but is my Savior, who's entered into my life, who was mindful, who knew my humble estate. Like the first title that you see a human give to God in the Bible is the God who sees Hagar in her distress. He says, you saw me. When God's speaking to Moses, he says, I've heard my people cry. I've seen their misery. He's a personal God. And what Mary's realizing as she steps out by faith, he's personal to me. 
And here's the reality. God's not just the Savior of the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So he died for the world. That is true. When he died, he wasn't just dying for a mass crowd, just so you know. He was dying for Luis. He was dying for Conrad, Connor, Andrew, Seth, Michael, Melissa, all of us. It's time for you. It's time for me. He's a personal Savior. It's not just a general truth out there to be known. God enters into your life. I was thinking about it this week with one of my daughters. We were going to go down to um, Apex Church. There's a church down there called Salem Baptist for a journey of Bethlehem. And I was joking with the first service that they actually came to church, even though um, one of our elders texted me this morning and said, are we having church? It snowed. <laughs> there is no snow out there today. What are you talking about? I'm from Michigan, so I know everybody goes, oh, he's from Michigan. We didn't go down there because it was snowing, okay? Just so you know. So I'm not as tough as I proclaim to be. But they do this thing every year, and it's great for the kids to go through and actually see the Christmas story. And we were doing it. Uh, the last time we went, my oldest daughter, who's now 12, was four. So it's been a while since I've been down there. But we went. And walked through the whole thing. Saw the star, the wise man, this whole deal. And it ends with the birth of Jesus. And they'll have, in their auditorium, they'll bring a group of people in and they put on a mini play. And there'll be somebody there, a young guy that's dressed up like Joseph and a young gal that's dressed up like Mary. And I assume it's their baby that's dressed up like Jesus. And you walk in and they're going to do the whole part. And I know the story. And I'm just trying to like corral the kids. My wife's got a newborn baby at this point, And I've got two. And two on one, I lose every time. Okay, I'm, I think that I'm smarter and stronger, but it just doesn't work out for me for some reason. Maybe it's my pride. God's just showing me. And I looked over, I think I looked over at one of them, and then when I looked back, I saw the nativity scene, and my kid was in it. <laughs> the kids, it's like, you just think that they know certain rules, but they don't know the rules. And I knew that, there, that she wasn't supposed to be up there. Like, I didn't know all the details of what they had planned out, but I knew my kid wasn't part of the deal. And so I, I hustled up on the stage, I grabbed my daughter's four, I bring her back to sit her down in the seat. I'm like, what are you doing? Why did you go up there? She said, well, I wanted to see Jesus. Amen. I'm a... What am I supposed to say? Pastor Scott, you're not supposed to see Jesus. Just sit right here and be quiet. Like, you're saying that moment. But to her, it was like so personal. And I was thinking about, about Jesus with us, and he didn't leave the crowd and come up to the stage. Jesus left heaven, came to us. And, and last week we talked about, it's not like it's a clean story. Rumors of adultery, divorce is going to happen. He enters into our story. He enters into this sinful world. And while he's sinless, tempted in every way, just every temptation you faced and failed, he faced and didn't fail. He lived a life you couldn't live. But he knew your life. And he entered into your life. It just hit me like a ton of bricks this week when I was reading this about Mary saying, my Savior, and, and you knew my humble estate. And, and we know that God knew her exact situation. It says in Galatians chapter 4, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of this woman, not born of the daughter of a king or a prophet or a priest, but Mary, undescript, nondescript, and her story. But he had been working out human history for her story. And he's working in yours too. You're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He's planned for you from before the beginning of time. And he enters into your story. He is a personal savior. Think about a couple weeks ago, I was preaching about carrying burdens, and we had the church praying for one another. And some of you shared some of your burdens with each other, and some of you didn't, and that's okay, but let me tell you something, God knows all of them, because he's personal. And somebody in this service that was crying in the aisles, I don't even know what the details were, God does. He sees, he hears, and what does Mary say? Mary says, he looked on, he looked on, he, see, he sees your story too. 
He's a personal Savior. That's not the only reason we trust him. She's not done with the song. In fact, there's a lot of stuff here we won't even be able to talk about. But the next part is she's a, he's a merciful Savior. Look at verses 50 through 55 with me. And his mercy is for those who fear him. Not just then, not just Israel, from generation to generation. That means us. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, like we talked about last week. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He can reverse your life. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. He keeps his promises. He's mighty. He's sovereign. He's merciful. And we can trust him because of his mercy. Last week we talked about his grace. Remember grace is when you receive what you don't deserve. Mercy I defined last week. We didn't talk much about it. But mercy is when you don't receive what you deserve. I was reading this week about a guy, Rudolf Haas, you really, really pronounce it as Hess, but then many people will think I'm talking about the guy that was second in charge to Hitler during the Holocaust. This guy wasn't second in charge, but he was a high-ranking official in Hitler's regime. He oversaw the death camp, concentration camp, Auschwitz. So those of you who are familiar with that history know that about one in six Jews died at that camp during that time. While he was overseeing that camp, uh, 2.5 million Jews were murdered. Another 500,000 died of starvation and diseases. After the war was over with, he was caught, captured, cowardly tried to get out of it, but he was captured. And when he stood trial, they were going to execute him. He was, they talked to him, you get an idea of how cold he is as a murderer, and so I don't want to minimize any mass murderers, but he was one of the worst. They charged him with three million deaths. He said, no, two and a half million, 500,000 died of starvation, as if he wasn't responsible for that. Just coldly said that. He knew that he was going to die. He wasn't afraid to die. Do you know what he was afraid of? He was afraid. He admitted this. He was afraid of going to, going to prison with the Polish guards, many of whom's daughters he had killed, wives he had killed, sons he had killed. Because he knew the punishment that he would receive from those guards, the pain, the torture would be unimaginable. But when he got to prison, the Polish guards were kind to him. Do you know what that is? That's mercy. He deserved to be punished. He deserved unimaginable pain. Two and a half million lives, three million lives. He deserved that. He didn't receive it. And so do you. You say, no, no, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says if you break God's law in one way, you're guilty of the whole thing. You know what the reality is? It's not even about how heinous it is, the sin that you and I do. It's who we sin against. We already read that he's a holy God. And it's not even about the activities and the actions. You know what it is? It's the lack of faith in our hearts because every sin is actually a lack of faith. And what we deserve then is eternal torment, eternal torture. The Bible says, if you think I'm making this up, in Romans chapter 6, for the wages, what you deserve, what you've earned with your life, for the wages of sin, and we all sin, is death. That's separation from God for eternity in hell. Eternal torment. But there's a gift. But the gift of God is eternal life. Do you know what that is? That's grace. That's you receiving what you don't deserve. And you know what else it is? It's mercy. You not receiving what you deserve. But here's the reality. You don't fall in love with someone for showing you mercy. Someone can show you mercy and you can be thankful. Mercy produces gratitude. Mercy does not produce passion. I told you that faith ignites passion for Christ. Mercy does not ignite passion. It can ignite gratitude. 
You, if you got pulled over on your way to church here today, and by God's mercy, some of you didn't, especially the second service, right? The roads are drier. No one wants to acknowledge that. I understand. I could probably, but we won't right now. And the officer says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I say, thank you, officer. Be grateful. Say nice things to the officer. You don't fall in love with the guy. He says, I love you so much. You might. You might. That's probably emotional problems, but you, that's probably not what's going to happen. You don't love God because of his mercy. You love God because he's merciful and personal. His mercy wasn't just that he took care of your debt. It was that he did it by sending his own son. And the son wasn't just the, the God's son here. It was so that you could know the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, not heaven, to the Father. That's relational, except for through me. So you can trust him because he's personal and he's merciful because he knew you needed mercy. He knew you needed grace. He knew you needed his mighty arm. And so you can trust him. And so Mary's going, hey, you, you can step out. What's your next step of faith? What's your risk? You can trust him. Will you trust him? I don't know what it is. I couldn't guess what it is that God's calling you to do. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I do know that that's your next step of faith. That's your first step of faith. Because the Bible says you're spiritually dead. But if you hear him calling you to himself, he's awakening your soul. Respond to him today and place your faith in him. Some of you have placed your faith in Jesus. He began a good work in you. What's your next step of faith? Maybe it's to lead in your home. Maybe it's to be bold with your, your, your neighbor. Maybe it's you're supposed to invite somebody to the Christmas Eve service. Maybe it's you're supposed to give financially. Maybe you're supposed to put yourself out there relationally. Maybe you're supposed to go overseas and share the gospel. Maybe you're supposed to stay faithful in the mundane details that he's calling you to now. And as he gives you a new command, you obey that command. And as he gives you the next command, you obey that command. I don't know. But I know you can trust him. I know it will seem like risks to you. And I know it will ignite passion for Christ because you'll be clinging to him. So will you trust him? The gift of Christ demands a response. Let's pray.